Episode 20. Greetings and welcome into the Patuxent General. This episode is a special one. I have two seasonal recipes for you today. A molded lamy shaped cake and a matzo ball soup. Both are favorite yearly treats for my family and customers. We continue our reading of the case of Charles Dexter Ward in our House on the Corner series. As always, I want to thank our Patreon subscribers who help us keep the lights on here at the PG. We are thankful for you every day. But before I start the recipes, I had a few thoughts that I felt I might share. In Patuxent Village, we have a parade every year where people dress up, uh, some of them as privateers in full regalia. They have swords and guns and eye patches. They growl and play the part. Children scream and laugh. They appear to be deadly thieves, ruthless. They have all the tools. These charlatans, carrying the ancient relics of evil, are the best of us. The charity givers, those who give and help and work as hard as they can to make life better for those who need it. To my mind, it doesn't matter what relics you carry, but what you carry in your heart that keeps your life's boat afloat. Lammy Cake My father came from a large family, and his mother, magnificent woman that she was, made a lammy cake for each of her children to share with their families at Easter dinner. I was lucky enough to live nearby and be there for the great baking. If any of the cousins were there, we had a special job. My grandmother would half-fill a mason jar with coconut flakes. Then, she would add a few drops of green food coloring, and after replacing the lid tightly, would hand it to the littlest one to shake into grass to make a bed for the platter for the lamb to sit. After that, we would scatter jelly beans and chocolate eggs. Grammy would have set the cake sturdily in the center of the platter and frosted the cake in swirls to mimic curly lammy hair. She added raisins for eyes and one for the nose, but the sweetest touch was the ribbon that held the tiny bell around its neck. Now, when cutting the cake, she would remove the head and make lovely equal slices of the body, cut in half for the little one. I was always focused on the head. I was that bit going to waste. So one day I asked her. Her reply was that I must promise never to eat the head. So, of course, I promised. I was frightened by the scared look in her eyes. Very rarely was she serious with me or anyone. So I did something uncharacteristic and was quiet. There were so many reasons my mind concocted to explain my grandmother's response. My focus on biblical history made me think it was disrespectful to eat the head of the Lamb of God, or perhaps like the ancient Greeks, we must sacrifice the head of the Lamb to bless the spring crops. Ten-year-old me could not figure it out. Years later, while making a lamby cake for my own little family... Having been given a mold from my mother the same as Grammy's, perhaps the sweetest Christmas gift of all. At some point, I asked my aunt and my dad for any tips besides the spiritual repercussions of eating the head. They both laughed and told me she put toothpicks in the ears to hold them on. I do not use toothpicks. I adjusted the recipe and eat the head. Do as your heart leads for this recipe you will need. For the cake, three quarters of a cup softened unsalted butter one and three quarter cup fine ground sugar three cups white or white whole wheat flour three teaspoons baking powder one teaspoon salt one and one half cups of milk 
one teaspoon of vanilla, and one quarter teaspoon of almond extract. For the frosting, you'll need a pound of confectioner's sugar, one half cup of salted butter, softened, and six tablespoons of cream. For the decoration and molding, you'll need three raisins, jelly beans, a ribbon and bell, chocolate eggs, and cooking spray, your choice. But one specifically for baking works the best. If you are using a metal cake mold like I have, make sure you thoroughly clean it the day before to give it time to really dry. Then preheat your oven to 375 degrees Fahrenheit. While that heats, let's prepare the cake mold. You can paint with a brush your favorite oil or butter, but I find that cooking spray gets into the nooks and crannies better. Once well covered, flour liberally. Then turn over the mold to firmly tap the excess flour onto your board. Do this to both halves. If you have done this well, you will not need toothpicks. Let me tell you, the ears taste like a crawler. Mm. The cake itself. The secret to this cake is sifting. Sift the fine sugar, sift the flour three times, sift the salt and baking powder into the flour. Also, all ingredients should be at room temperature. By that, I mean 70 degrees. The butter will cream better if it's already soft. First, the sifting. Take your three cups of flour and sift it twice. Then add three teaspoons of baking powder and one teaspoon of salt and sift it again. Set that aside. Put three quarters of a cup softened unsalted butter into your mixer bowl and sift in the one and three quarter cups of fine sugar. Gently beat until fluffy set aside. The wet mix is next. In a bowl, combine one and a half cups milk, one teaspoon vanilla, and one quarter teaspoon almond extract, and set that aside. Whip six egg whites until stiff, not dry. All right, let's put it all together. The butter-sugar mix. First, the butter-sugar mix goes into the mixer bowl. Add the sifted ingredients in three parts, alternating with the milk mixture. Be careful to combine, but not overmix. Then, gently fold in the egg whites so that they don't deflate one-third at a time. Fold into the face-down prepared mold, being careful to put a little in each ear to fortify. Give it one good thump on the counter to release any air bubbles. Put the top on and bake for one hour. There is a bit of faith involved here. Unless you have a mold version with a steam vent for checking doneness like any other cake, mine does not. So, I make sure the temperature is right in the oven with a thermometer and let it go for an hour. Then I take it out and let it sit for 15 minutes to cool. Then take the top off. This is the back of the head and the body on the mold. And let it sit to cool for another 15 minutes to harden. At this point, you should be able to turn it over onto a wire rack. It should be face up. After you've taken the second half of the mold off, let it fully cool like this before you try to stand it up. And while it does, let's talk frosting. The sky's the limit. I've used dark chocolate, lemon cream cheese, or whatever store-bought you have around. Rainbow lammy? Why not? But for the traditional recipe here, this is the frosting that goes with it. Slowly and gently combine one half cup softened butter, salted. I use salted to brighten the flavors. One pound confectioner's sugar, 
6 tablespoons cream. Feel free to double this to match the lamb to other cakes or in between vanilla wafer crackers. Trade secret. Cover lamby cake with frosted curls and gently press shredded coconut onto the frosted bits. Then it's all up to you, my friends. Finish your way. Go wild. Send me pictures on Facebook or email us, jess at patuxetgeneral.com. I can't wait to see what you've done. Enjoy. Matzo ball soup. My grandmother always told me, if you've never tried to make something before, look for the recipe on the back of the package of the ingredient you know are in it. These recipes are tried to perfection to make it easy for use. So, when it came time for me to try my hand at matzo ball soup, I read the back of the matzo meal container. It was a great guide that I've tweaked over the years. Many close friends gave me their mother's or grandmother's secret ingredient suggestion. So this is a mishmash of love developed over the years. Enjoy! The best matzo ball soup starts at a butcher. A good butcher can often be persuaded by prior notice, politeness, and flattery to sell you chicken fat and skin by the pound. Take as much as you can get. I once got 10 pounds. You can always freeze the leftovers after you render it. Also, get a whole chicken, and don't be picky. You mostly want it for the bones, and we were already so pushy about the fat. Okay, back in the kitchen. Pull the skin off the chicken and throw it into a deep pot with the rest of the fat. Let this render at medium-low heat until until it is a mostly clear golden liquid with some crispy skin bits. Uh, remove these bits and keep them to fend off hungry people who will want to try your matzo balls as you cook them. So for this recipe, you will need at least a pound of chicken skin and fat, one chicken, three fat carrots cut in chunks, one equal-sized parsnip, three large onions halved, one full rib of celery cut in chunks, about 10 quarts of water to cover the chicken and vegetables, salt and pepper, one bay leaf, four garlic cloves, eight large eggs, and one package of matzo meal. If you can only find whole matzo, you can grind that, and you'll actually have much better matzo balls. Both the rendering and the chicken broth should be done the day before. This way, the flavors will have time to marry a bit. The, the change in taste is dramatic. So, the chicken, take your large pot, get it up to a medium-high temperature, then throw in a good chunk of chicken fat with all your chunky vegetables. Sweat the vegetables like this until brown bits start to form at the bottom. Put the chicken in and fill the pot three-quarters of the way with water. Add the bay leaf, the garlic, and bring to a boil. Turn down the pot and simmer it until the chicken falls apart. Let it cool down, then refrigerate overnight. In the morning, strain off and reserve the liquid. If you wish, you could remove the bones and make hash for breakfast with the chicken and vegetables. For our soup is going to be clear. This is the time to taste your broth. Does it need to cook down some more or need a little salt or pepper? Take a vote around your house if you aren't sure. This soup is all about the love you put into it. If you try the broth every once in a while, you'll be confident to give it to your people. Bon Appetit magazine says to add a whole bunch of dill to the previous step to make the broth. But having done some research, I now know why I have floaters versus sinkers. So, dig this. Jess's version from matzo ball. You will need one half cup schmaltz, which is rendered chicken or goose fat, eight large eggs separated, one cup matzo meal, a half cup hot chicken broth, four teaspoons salt, 
So, take a large mixing bowl and whisk egg whites until pretty frothy. Then, whisk in the yolks as well. Add the rest of your ingredients and mix quickly. When fully incorporated, cover with plastic and chill in the refrigerator for half an hour. Then we're ready to cook them. Your matzo ball mix should look dramatically different when you remove it from the refrigerator. But this is where we differ. I do not make balls rolled in my hand. I use a scoop to gently scoop out the same exact amount every single time. In doing this, my matzo balls are a little less compact. They have a lot of flavor, but the extra air makes them float. All right, I make a medium-sized matzo ball. Fill a pot three-quarters of the way with water and put in a tablespoon of salt. Bring to a rolling boil. Take a scoop half the size you would like your matzo balls to be and scoop them one by one into the boiling water until it settles. Then wait, only adding more when it rolls again. No more than 12 in a large pot at a time. When they start to float, about five minutes later, grab one out and check for doneness. When squished, they should be a bit juicy. Then grab them with a slotted spoon and put aside so you can continue to cook off the rest. To serve, take a warm bowl and ladle warm stock over two or three matzo balls. Then top with a bit of finely chopped parsley and perhaps a teaspoon of schmaltz. Enjoy! I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his Electromagnetic Pinball Museum and Restoration Arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball, EM pinball, and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego too. $10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. This week's episode of the House in the Corner series, we have the continuing reading of the case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. We have now reached the point from which the more academic school of alienists date Charles Ward's madness. Upon his discovery, the youth had looked immediately at the few inner pages of the books and manuscripts and had evidently seen something which impressed him tremendously. Indeed, in showing the titles to the workmen, he appeared to guard the text itself with particular care and to labor under a perturbation for which even the antiquarian and genealogical significance of the find could hardly account. Upon returning home, he broke the news with an almost embarrassed air, as if he wished to convey the idea of its supreme importance without having to exhibit the evidence itself. He did not even show the titles to his parents, but simply told them that he had found some documents in Joseph Kerwin's handwriting, mostly in cipher, which would have to be studied very carefully before yielding up their true meaning. It is unlikely that he would have shown what he did to the workmen had it not been for their unconcealed curiosity. 
As it was, he doubtless wished to avoid any display of peculiar reticence that would increase their discussion of the matter. That night, Charles Ward sat up in his room reading the newest found book and papers, and when day came, he did not desist. His meals, on his urgent request when his mother came to see what was amiss, were sent up to him. And in the afternoon, he appeared only briefly when the men came to install the Kerwin picture and mantelpiece in his study. The next night, he slept in snatches, in his clothes, meanwhile wrestling feverishly with the unraveling of the cipher manuscript. In the morning, his mother saw that he was at work on the photostatic copy of the Hutchinson cipher, which he had frequently shown her before. But in response to her query, he said that the Kerwin key could not be applied to it. That afternoon, he abandoned his work and watched the men as they finished their installation of the picture, with its word work above the cleverly realistic electric log, setting the mock fireplace and overmantel a little out from the north wall as if a chimney existed, and boxing in both sides with paneling to match the rooms. The front panel holding the picture was sawn and hinged to allow cupboard space behind it. After the workmen left, he moved his work into the study and sat down before it with his eyes half on the cipher and half on the portrait which stared back at him like a year-adding and century-recalling mirror. His parents, subsequently recalling his conduct at this period, gave interesting details amid the policy of concealment which he had practiced. Before servants, he seldom hid any paper which he might be studying since he rightly assumed that Kerwin's intricate and archaic script would be too much for them. With his parents, however, he was more circumspect, and unless the manuscript in question were a cipher, or a mere mass of cryptic symbols and unknown ideographs, as the entitled, to him who shall come after, etc., seemed to be, he would cover it with some convenient paper until his caller had departed. At night, he kept his papers under lock and key in the antique cabinet of his, where he also placed them whenever he left his room. He soon resumed fairly regular hours and habits, except that his long walks and other outside interests seemed to cease. The opening of school, where he now began his senior year, seemed to be a great bore to him, and he frequently asserted his determination never to bother with college. He had, he said, important special investigations to make, which would provide him with more avenues towards knowledge of the humanities than any university which the world could boast. Naturally, only one who had been more or less studious, eccentric, and solitary could ever pursued this course for many days without attracting notice. Ward, however, was constitutionally a scholar and a hermit. Hence, his parents were less surprised than regretful at the close confinement and secrecy he adopted. At the same time, both his father and mother thought it odd that he would show them no scrap of his treasure trove, nor give any connected account of such data he had deciphered. This reticence he explained away as due to a wish to wait until he might announce some connected revelation. But as the weeks passed without further disclosures, there began to grow up between the youth and his family a kind of constraint, intensified in his mother's case by her manifest disapproval of all Kerwin delvings. During October, Ward began to visit the libraries again, but no longer for the antiquarian matter of his former days. Witchcraft and magic, occultism and demonology were what he sought now, and when the Providence sources proved unfruitful, he would take the train to Boston and tap the wealth of the great library in Copley Square, the Windner Library at Harvard, or the Zion Research Library in Brookline, where certain rare works on biblical subjects were available. 
He bought extensively and fitted up a whole additional set of shelves in his study for the newly acquired works on uncanny subjects. While during the Christmas holidays, he made a round of out-of-town trips, including one to Salem, to consult certain records at the Essex Institute. About the middle of January 1920, there entered Ward's bearing an element of triumph which he could not explain, and he was no more found at the work of the Hutchinson cipher. Indeed, he inaugurated a dual policy of chemical research and record scanning, fitting up for the one a laboratory in the unused attic of his house, and the latter haunting all the sources of vital statistics in Providence, local dealers in drugs and scientific supplies, later questioned, gave astonishingly queer and meaningless catalogs of the substances and instruments he purchased. But clerks at the State House and City Hall and the various libraries agree as to the definite subject of his second interest. He was searching intensely and feverishly for the grave of Joseph Kerwin, from whose slate slab the older generation had so wisely blotted the name. Little by little, there grew upon the Ward family the conviction that something was wrong. Charles had had freaks and changes of minor interest before, but this growing secrecy and absorption in strange pursuits was unlike even him. His schoolwork was the merest pretense, and although he failed in no test, it could be seen that the old application had all vanished. He had other concernments now, and when not in his new laboratory with a score of obsolete alchemical books, could be seen poring over old burial records downtown or glued to his volumes of occult lore in his study, where the startingly, one almost fancied increasingly, similar features of Joseph Kerwin stared blandly at him from the great overmantel on the north wall. Late in March, Ward added to his archive searching a ghoulish series of rambles about the various ancient cemeteries of the city. The cause appeared later, when it was learned from city hall clerks that he probably found an important clue. His quest had suddenly shifted from the grave of Joseph Kerwin to that of one Thali Field, and the shift was explained when, upon going over the files which he had bent over, the investigators actually found a fragmentary record of Kerwin's burial, which had escaped the general obliteration, and which stated that the curious leaden coffin had been interred ten feet south and five feet west of Nathalie Field grave. The lack of the specified burying ground in the surviving entry greatly complicated the search, and Nathalie's Field grave seemed as elusive as that as Kerwin, but here no systematic effacement had existed. One might reasonably be expected to stumble on the stone itself, even if the record had perished. Hence the rambles, from which St. John's, the former King's Churchyard, and the ancient congregational burying ground in the midst of Swan Point Cemetery were excluded, since other statistics had shown that only Nathalie Field, obit 1729, whose grave could have been meant had been a Baptist. Thank you again for joining us here at the PG. If you like what we are doing and would like to become a part of it, please check out our Patreon page. There is a link in the show notes, and we appreciate every bit. I hope you enjoyed this special 20th episode, and I'll meet you back here next week at the Patuxent General. A Something for Posterity production, pre-recorded in Patuxent. <laughs>